Chapter 6, The Power. Welcome back for session six of the Activated Team series. In the last session, session five, we began to pivot from our first four sessions focus on deepening our sense of why to beginning to equip you in the how. The why is about growing our passion and love for Jesus, seeing our intimacy with him deepen and being motivated by his good news to want to share it with others. The how is about how we actually make new disciples of Jesus. I've found that most of us have learned how to invite people to our church or an event, but we may not be clear about how to begin discipling people on our own. As we lean in on the how even more, our objective for this session is to experience the Spirit's power through prayer-dependent lives of risk. As a result, I hope you begin to anticipate and experience the power and the presence of the Spirit as more visible and normal in your daily life. An awkward, awesome life with Jesus. About the time I was launching the ministry to musicians that I shared about in session one, I met Chad, who later became a friend of mine. Chad had worked for a record label and been very successful in finding and signing some great bands. But just before I met him, God had grabbed his attention and he was beginning to launch his ministry, leaving all material success and security behind. Watching his journey was incredible. Over the years, Chad was a great encouragement to me as the two of us set out on our own risky fundraising journeys. Years later, Chad was moved to get even riskier. He began a blog, which he later turned into a book, chronicling 1,000 risks with the Lord. He began to listen deeply to the Lord and respond in some crazy ways. He found himself overcome with love for people, love that caused him to step out and say what he felt the Lord was putting on his heart, often asking if he could pray for people's healing on the spot. He prayed boldly and expectantly. He begged the Lord to heal people and to do great work in their lives. As he puts it, it was an awkward, awesome life with Jesus. I think Chad's story parallels other stories we find in scripture. So I want to work to highlight a few key lessons we must consider as we understand the how of making disciples. Out of the overflow of Chad's heart came a Jesus-like love for people and a desire to see the kingdom of God here on earth. God had rocked him and he was realizing the invitation, which we've all been given to participate in making disciples. He was gospel motivated and less and less self-focused. After leaving his role at the record label, Chad began to invite people he knew to pray and fast regularly. He called it Fast Friday. But before long, groups of people around the country were abstaining and meeting often together for prayer. Revival began to ignite in people's hearts. God began to move and groups of people were postured to listen. Practicing gospel-powered dependence on God. Maybe fasting and focused times of group prayer have not been disciplines you've experienced, but they're displays of dependence on God. They're spaces in which we pause and posture in need of Him. Chad was inviting people into spaces where they were dependent on God to speak and act. I want to use this next moment to recap our Activated Team series thus far, leading up to my next few points. In session one, 
we began with being connected to others in this with us. And we said yes to presencing Jesus in unavoidable ways to the people God has put on our hearts, those we find we have great compassion for. In session two, we spent time understanding that encountering the gospel of Jesus ourselves is actually what motivates us to reach out to these people. In session three, we discussed how remaining in a posture of repentance can continue to grow our affection for Jesus. And in session four, we learned that as our joy in Jesus grows, we seek to know more and we begin sharing what he's doing in us. Then in session five, we notice that as we learn who he is and who we are in him, we start to notice other people's need for him. We invite them to know and experience what we have. Our first point in this session, session six, is that none of those things are possible without the power of the gospel and the ongoing work of the Spirit of God. Let's be clear. It's the beautiful collision of our willingness and his work. The Spirit of God is doing all kinds of work behind the scenes in us and other people's lives every day. We're completely dependent on his gospel of grace accomplished on the cross for anything positive to take place. The key word here is dependent. We must recognize that we're completely dependent on God. Romans 1.16 is often used to emphasize the boldness we should have when it comes to sharing and standing for the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But if that's all we read into it, we're missing the bigger point. It says the gospel is the power of God. It, in and of itself, is what is power. The gospel is power. Continuing with verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Our righteousness and our ability to partner with God in helping others to have his righteousness are completely dependent on what he has done through the gospel given to us from faith for faith. Our power is not in our will or our determination or our commitments or our skills or even in our willingness. We're completely dependent on him, on the gospel, which is the power. John 15 is rich with the truth regarding our dependence on him. You may be familiar with verse 5. It reads, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Many verses speak to our deep abiding dependence on him. This is just one of them. Without the grace of God, we won't be made aware of our need for his gospel. We won't respond to it in repentance. We won't be motivated by it. We won't have eyes to see who he is and what he's doing in us. And we certainly won't want to share him with the lost. We're completely dependent on the truth of his gospel and his spirit to work in us and through us. So, as we move out in experiencing how to share him with people, we can't forget that we're still dependent on the spirit. Disciple-making tools, strategies, and methodologies are worthless in and of themselves. We must actively meet with him and learn to listen for his voice. It's this 
beautiful and difficult to explain collision of our willingness and his work or our work and his willingness. I'm not sure. But either way, nothing happens outside of our dependence on him to move in us and through us. He is the power behind it all. He is the worker and we are the willing. We get to listen for his marching orders and then play all in. But it's all about him working. The glory do his name. You might remember our vision statement to see Christ glorified in the whole neighborhoods and networks of new disciples. This statement begins with an emphasis on all the glory going to Christ, Christ glorified. Our second point is that he wants the glory do his name for who he is and for the work he does. Psalm 29, two reads, ascribe to the Lord, the glory do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, God says, For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is seriously committed to preserving his glory in the most sinless, non-narcissistic posture because he's God. I can't even fully wrap my head around that, but he can't sin. I, however, can't seem to think or operate without believing or feeling like it's all about me. I'm sinful and narcissistic. Without admitting it, I want his glory. Okay, I admitted it. Being able to say I had something to do with someone's coming to Christ feels pretty good, doesn't it? It feeds my identity as someone who needs to matter. But do I want his glory made known more than I need to be the catalyst for that? What a testing question. How about you? What if you were never used and still God found a way to glorify himself? Would you rejoice with as much passion? If I'm honest, I struggle with this. The remaining pride-filled and broken parts of my identity start revealing how much I want to be God. I'm a glory stealer, especially when I get away from remembering his gospel work in my life. I get to run back to that posture of repentance we talked about where he forgives and shows me how much he loves me. I get to run back to the power. Listening prayer, desperate for the grace giver. So, We are completely dependent on the power of God in the gospel and his spirit to move and work in and through us. And we are committed to his getting the glory. Now what? My understanding from other much smarter people who've studied gospel movements over the centuries is how all significant movements of God through people groups or nations start with concerted, focused, dependent prayer from his people the embrace of a supernatural God to move and work ahead of them. I would bet that these are the kinds of people who are desperately in love with their savior because of what he did for them. And they're compelled to meet with him in prayer, just like my buddy Chad. In prayer, we gain a sense of what God is calling us to pray for, a movement of God in our lands, a mighty work of his hands. If we want to see Christ glorified in our neighborhood or network and new disciples getting made, we get to begin with prayer. 
We get to be desperate for him, to move our hearts for others and for him to get the glory for it all. This is where the idea of prayer shifts from an afterthought, seeking to have our work blessed, to a forefront, most important focus, a frontline emphasis, a starting place. My third point is that we must come together on our knees. We must be people who pray together for God to move. Prayer is not just for the old lady knitting group. Praise God for them. It's for all of us. A plethora of autobiographies and books testify to how God works when his people pray. And we'll share a few of them with you later. But if we're going to talk about making new disciples, or even the idea of seeing a whole gospel movement sweep through a land, we have to start with needing the real power, the power of the Spirit. Some of us learned along the way that prayer was little more than thanking God for the food at our meals or for the joys of our day before we went to bed. This ritualistic type of prayer left many of us in the dust, unempowered. We get to break out of this religious rhythm and discover that prayer is a conversation with the grace giver, which doesn't have to start like a dear Lord letter. You're not writing a letter. I don't start my conversations with my friends like, dear Ricky, do you want to build a snowman? We speak, he listens. He speaks, we listen. It's a conversation. Staying in the conversation. You may have noticed that periodically as you meet as an activated team, your coach invites you to pause and pray at different times. What has this been like for you? Have you been comfortable with the idea of prayer being a moment of quiet listening for what the Spirit is saying to you? Inviting Him to be there with you? I want to invite you to begin something new with your activated team. I want to invite you to practice asking Jesus two kinds of questions. Lord, what are you seeing, saying, or doing right now? Jesus, in light of what I'm noticing, what would you like me to do in response? For illustration, imagine you're sitting with me at my favorite coffee shop with the semi-comfy chairs and you've been getting to know the regulars and the baristas. You notice Sue, the kind grandma you met weeks before, sitting alone eating her croissant and whisper to the Lord something to the effect of, what are you saying to me about Sue? Asking this prayerful question, hearing a response, and knowing what to do is awkward, especially when we first start asking the question. Hearing is hard. I know what it's like to have a lot of things in the way, like my own agendas for people, my fears, or a zillion other things. For example, I'm famous for creating a whole bunch of stuff that no one cares about because I get out ahead of the spirit. I don't always listen and look for what he's doing. I often think I see the way forward for someone or a whole ministry, and I create beautiful whiteboard diagrams and plans that God never uses. I over-function in my organizational strategic giftings and waste a bunch of time spinning my wheels while God is busy doing something else without me. If only I had stopped to listen to him, Maybe I'd hear other marching orders or get a clue into what he's doing with someone's heart. Do you ever overfunction? Do your giftings ever lead you ahead of the spirit? Or maybe you're just immobilized with something like fear. Do any of these ever cause you to miss what God's doing? Maybe you're like me and find yourself refreshed 
by the idea of slowing down and spending a bit more time depending on hearing the Spirit's marching orders, not assuming you already know them. One lesson I've learned is that God's agenda in every single moment is much wiser, more loving, more strategic, and much more gracious than mine ever is. So let's take off the crown, put the whistle down, turn in our badge, and let him be the leader. Let's listen for his voice. Before long, you'll begin to hear him speak specifics. These will feel like loving nudges or maybe even specific words. In Sue's case, you simply sense that you should try to make eye contact with her and wave hi. So you do it. You take the risk. You put yourself out there because you think you've heard God's voice or at least a nudge that felt loving, which, by the way, is from him. And guess what? Your little wave works in Sue and she gets up and walks over to you. You chat for a minute, and then she sheepishly asks you to pray for her. She knows you follow Jesus from your last interaction, so she goes on to explain how she's nervous about an upcoming cancer follow-up appointment. She agrees to let you hold her hand and pray for her right there on the spot. But what if you had never stopped to ask God what he was doing with Sue? What if you never stopped to listen for what he would have you do? You would miss out on being used by him to love people like he does and like he wants to let you experience. As you make space to ask him these questions in your activated team, I'd invite you to share your answer with the group as an I will statement of obedience. If out of the discussion you ask God these questions and you sense him inviting you to do something or maybe stop doing something, frame it and share it as an I will statement. For example, I will invite my neighbor over for dinner this week. Or maybe it sounds like, when I realize I'm being judgmental, I will repent and choose love. What this statement does is give those people in your activated team who are supporting you on mission an opportunity to know what God is telling you to do and follow up with you next time you meet. It also invites them to pray with and for you as you take new risky steps to love people and follow God. We want this kind of accountability. If you'll take a step of faith in each one of these sessions, you will have the possibility of seeing great things happen. So let's be people of risk. We aren't alone. The Spirit goes before us and with us, and He does a really good job of cleaning up the awkward messes we create along the way. Remember my friend Chad? He looked like a weirdo to a lot of people maybe as many as 1,000 people over a couple of years. But guess what? He also got to be used in some pretty incredible ways. God healed some people through his obedience. But even more importantly, people came to know Jesus. It's easy to get hung up on trying to preserve God's reputation by never risking. But I'm convinced he does a really good job of managing that for himself. I think he's simply inviting us to an awkward, awesome life of risk with Jesus for the sake of making new disciples. Without risk, there's no reward. Or said another way, without faith-filled action, there's no tasting the joy of the results. Without risk, you won't get to participate in the fruit. So listen often, pray boldly, and risk.
As Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12, we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live and you will be honored along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Well, may you and I and Chad and others experience the Spirit's power through a prayer-dependent life of risk. For the joy of seeing Sue and others fall deeply in love with Jesus for his glory and their good.